Hey, good morning. So glad you're here. If you're online, we're glad you're a part of that crew. Um, we're in this spring series. It's called Planted. I feel like we should give the weather people some credit for getting it right today. Um, you can clap for them if you want. Yeah, yeah. Three days in a row. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we, you know how the winter is, is going to come back. We just don't know what day. And we should give them some credit for missing it on Thursday and Friday, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. How many of you got up and thought, where's, you know, where's the foot of snow that we, I was so glad that there was not much. I know, I know. We need the moisture, blah, 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 and all that. But I'm thankful because I said last week, I don't care what happens, I'm not shoveling. And then when I saw the forecast of a foot, I thought, I guess we're all staying home on Friday. So the, uh, this, this series that we're in, Planted, is, is all about spring and the time of spring and the things that are contained in what it means to grow and what it means to have roots. And it's time to buy flowers. It's not quite yet time. You know, if you buy them too early, they got to go in your garage for that last spring snow. So you got to be careful here in Colorado. You can't plant them too soon. Everything will die. But it is time to think about planting. As we think about planting and we look at scripture, it seems as if the pages from the beginning to the end of scripture are filled with wisdom and lessons from the farm. And this is important to us. Because most of us, as we found out last week, we have somebody who, uh, in our ancestry, as recent as a generation or two ago, they lived on the farm, they raised things on the farm, they had farming life. And so we have some knowledge, but we don't have the depth of knowledge. We have some understanding, but it's not a part of our daily life. And when I read scripture from beginning to end, and I see this in every page, every book, every prophet, every epistle, every gospel, it seems as if that if you want to understand God, you need to understand the farm. If you want to understand life and how it works, that you need to understand the farm. That you have to look to the natural way that God set up the world if you want to know about his nature about what it means to wait, about what it means to plant and fertilize and grow and harvest. And you see it from the very beginning. The book of Genesis, the story of our creation, chapter two, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent, what? No rain yet to water the earth. And there were no, what? To do what? to cultivate the soil. And it seems as if from the very beginning, as this is detailed in the the creation account, that there's this symbiotic relationship between the creation that we live in and around and us. What is there and our role in it. We we, we named animals, we had to tend, you know, we we have this myth, I think, in in the church at times that work was a a part of the curse, and that's not true. Long before sin ever entered the picture, Adam, Eve, they were cultivating the soil. They were building it. They were tending it. This is part of it, and it's all through almost the wisdom literature, you name it. In fact, Solomon says it this way. He says, for everything there's a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to what? And a time to... And this is the rhythm of life. This is how it works, that there is planting and there's harvesting. Now, here's the problem. We talked briefly about it last week. 
The problem is, for the first time in history, this natural rhythm of planting and harvesting isn't a part of our daily experience, a part of our daily life. It didn't matter if you were a farmer or not a farmer. A hundred years ago, you were well aware of what was happening in the planting and the harvesting and how it affected what you could eat, what was available to you to eat. It's different now. You don't have to wait for a harvest to enjoy a strawberry. Now, this is not the way it was, and I'm not saying it should be the way it was. I'm just saying the change affects how we see life, what we expect, how we understand God. And it's this way for us. In other words, some of this is cloaked from us. We don't understand it very well because we neither plant nor do we harvest. We don't. I mean, we do a thousand different ways, but we don't really. I mean, if we do, it's, it's in our little vegetable garden. Or for some of us who know somebody who farms, maybe we're a little bit more aware of it, but this is not a part of our daily existence. Our, our kids, our oldest, Austin and his wife, Maddie, they are uh, in the UK right now. We're, we're dog sitting for them and, and managing. We have a little bitty German short hair, you know, you might remember we bought a dog. And then uh, they have a great Pyrenees. So our little, our little German short hair, you know, weighs about 40 pounds. Uh, the great Pyrenees is about 100 pounds. And, uh, and they're best friends. And so they wrestle and play, and the little German short hair catches a ride on the back of the great Pyrenees. We, I think we're going to get a saddle today. So, um, so anyway, they're gone. They're in the UK, and they are, they are messing around in various parts of the UK. The last couple of days, they've been in in Wales, and they've been tracing Vaughan heritage. They know some things about the Vaughan heritage, and so they're, they're at a place called Tree Tower Castle. They were there yesterday and, and uh, in the neighborhood the day before. This is uh, a castle in the Welsh hamlet there. It's, it is, um, has a long, long history. Uh, Sir Roger Vaughan tended the castle, lived there with his clan in the 14, 1500s. There were people that lived in this castle um, as late as the 1700s. But now, of course, it's been partially restored. They're, they're there. Che- I mean, isn't that beautiful? It's just gorgeous. They're there checking it out. And here's Austin and Maddie in the great room. Okay, That's Austin and Maddie. That's our son and his wife, uh, our oldest. It looks like he belongs there. You know what I mean? I mean, he's got this. The, I think he just needs you know, some chain mail and he's good to go. They're in the great hall that obviously has been restored. And when you think about the great hall and all the banquets that occurred in these places, it's, it's just incredible to think about that time in history. But when Sir Roger Vaughan decided to throw a great banquet in honor of some something or another, I mean, he didn't go to Costco, right? He didn't. He didn't have his groceries delivered. He had to go, you know, he talked to his cook or servants or whoever else was part of his life, but it was all a part of planting and harvesting and growing and feeding and butchering and all of that. This was their life. Our life is very, very different now. Our life is not centered around planting and harvesting. And harvest time meant something, and we miss this. These lessons are all through scripture, uh, you know, from the beginning of the scriptures, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, all the way through the writings of Paul that are most recent. In fact, in Galatians, Paul uses this analogy to describe a spiritual process 
that we many times completely miss. He says this, make no mistake about this. You, you, can't, you can never make a fool out of God. In fact, say this last sentence with me. Whatever you plant is what you'll harvest. And so we might know it in a different translation. Maybe you know whatever you reap, whatever, whatever you sow, you shall therefore reap, right? Gave that one to you. When Paul says this, it is an absolute, true, and essential metaphor. But for you and me, in our life, what's missing is we harvest all kinds of things that we did not plant, don't we? I mean, I didn't raise them, but I sure enjoyed it for dinner. I didn't plant it, but I just went to the store and threw it in my cart and drove home. Again, this is, I'm, I promise you, I'm not pining for the good old days, okay? I mean, I'm not getting up in years, but I'm not, I'm not a grumpy old man just yet. Sometimes I'm grumpy, but I haven't made it to the grumpy old man stage. I, I I'm not pining for the old days. I, I, do not, I, I do not want to churn my own butter. I do not. When we were first married, Donna would say, I feel like I was born in the wrong generation, that Donna would have a habit of pining for the old days until I said, you know, well, yeah, but when we cook this thing, we just zap it, or we don't have to churn our own butter. We just go to the fridge and take a knife, and you know, there, now we have buttered toast, and we didn't have to milk the cow and spend half the day, and so on and so forth. I, modern times are absolutely amazing. However, there are some things that are part of history and time and farming and culture and harvesting and planting and reaping and sowing and raising and killing and all of that that we have missed out on that are not a part of our normal conscious life. And because of that, when Paul says... Whatever you plant, that's, that's what you'll harvest. We understand it theoretically, but we don't understand it practically speaking. And this creates some issues for us. It creates some problems because this idea, well, even though the world has changed, even though modern life has brought all kinds of conveniences to our existence, the natural world hasn't changed. Our understanding of it is much better. I mean, we can grow things that we couldn't grow before, fertilizing and all kinds of incredible improvements to how we live and engage with the natural world. But the principles are still the same. The, you can't grow things much faster than even our great-great-great-grandparents could. And it deeply affects how we interact with people, our jobs, what we think our life ought to be about, how little patience we have. We talked about that last week. All kinds of things are deeply impacted by this. Whatever you plant is what you'll harvest. Now, this forms the backdrop of everything we'll talk about through this series in May as we prepare for summer. But as you're planting, as you're thinking, as you are trying to figure out your vegetable garden, hopefully some of these principles that we unearth from Scripture will help you in the way you approach other people, what you can expect from God, and how you interact with the world around you. And so for the next two weeks, here's what we'll do. We're going to take a look at two places in the Gospels, only two places that I know of, where this principle of planting and harvesting is interrupted, is completely violated. And there's a reason why. One's a parable, one's a real life experience. But when this cycle that is 
part of the fabric of life for the people that grew up in the first century. When plant, it, it's, so, it's so much a part of their life that Paul uses it as a spiritual principle. When it's violated, we learn something about how life works. And so this is broken in two instances in the Gospels. And this is the first one. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was what? How many of you are hungry right now? How many of you this week uh, found yourself being a little bit hangry? Anybody? A few of you? This, this moment where hunger begins to highlight all the things that are not going well for you and not working out for you, and your hunger begins to scream at you. And maybe it's a low blood sugar, maybe it's just you feeling like it's going to be a while before you get a chance to eat. This moment happens the last week of Jesus' life. We detailed it highly as we were getting ready for Easter. But Jesus is leaving Bethany, leaving the house of Lazarus, recently raised from the dead, Martha and Mary. He's headed toward Jerusalem the last week of his life, and he's hungry. And then Mark says this, and he noticed a fig tree. Now, I don't know if you have a fig tree. Anybody have a fig tree in their yard? Anybody? Yeah? No? Nobody. Nobody has a fig tree? They're not too common around here. They're, they're much more common in a more temperate climate with a longer growing season, either south or west of us. They're, they're pretty important trees, and they play a massive role in Scripture. It's the very first actual species of anything that's growing that's mentioned in the Bible. Not long after that passage I read in Genesis, all kinds of things are mentioned, you know, seed bearing, fruit bearing, all sorts of things are mentioned. But very quickly, the fig tree is mentioned. Anybody know why? You remember why? So Adam and Eve, they find themselves in a place of sin and disobedience, and so they go to the fig tree. Well, that's where we get the first clothes. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a fig tree, but the leaves are pretty small, Maybe not the visual you wanted for church, but it says that they sewed several together, and they would have to, otherwise they would have had like a mankini on or something, I don't know. But it wouldn't have covered much, is what I'm trying to say. The fig tree is also mentioned by the prophets, it's mentioned by Isaiah, it's mentioned by Jeremiah, and it plays heavily in the Gospels. Jesus is coming in for the last week of his life, and he sees this fig tree, and when he sees the fig tree, he noticed that it's in full leaf, and it's a little way off, and this is important. Fig trees aren't large, but they can have a lot of leaves. They, when they're in full leaf, it can be hard to see that there's anything that is tree-like above the root and above the trunk. But he sees it, and it's in full leaf. It's a little way off. And so he went over to see if he could find any figs. He's hungry. He wants a snack. And he wants to employ this principle of harvesting because somebody planted. And Jesus is going to give him a little, little lunch. But there were only leaves on it, only leaves, because it was what? Too early in the season to fruit. Here's what's interesting. You can see almost all of Jesus' humanity in this little incident. He's, he's hungry. He's going to go get him something. He's going to pick it off. He's going to eat it. He is fully human, 100% human. He's fully God as well. But in this moment, his hunger's taken over, he's hungry, he wants to go get something, and this passage, if you've ever read it, especially in the Gospel of Mark, 
It's only in Matthew and Mark. It's a little different in both of them. The story's a little, a little different. It's confusing. Because you have to wonder, for all the things that Jesus knew, did he not know that it wasn't time for there to be fruit? Why did Mark include this comment? And it's especially confusing when Jesus does what he does. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, this is sandwiched between, after this he goes and he clears out the temple and turns over the tables and kicks out the money changers. And then they come back later the next day and they notice that that tree has in fact what? It's dead, it's withered, it's no longer a tree. When Jesus said this, apparently, according to Matthew, it died immediately. And some of the disciples noticed it and some of them didn't, but they saw it, at least everybody came to be on the same page the very next day. And so Jesus says this, and it's all the more confusing when Mark explains that it was a tree and had figs, it should have had figs, a fig tree, it was in full leaf, but it didn't have any fruit. So what is going on? And why didn't Jesus know it wasn't time to, I mean, I know he wasn't a farmer, but again, an agrarian society, everyone knew. Everyone understood that it wasn't necessarily fig season. And so it's incredibly confusing. So what is going on here? This is important for us to grasp, but we want to understand it because the lesson is deep and it's about Israel and it's about us. Fig trees, at least modern ones, they fruit, most of them, twice a year. Usually in early spring and usually pretty close to one another. They fruit maybe in February, as early as February, and they can fruit again in March or April. Seems strange, but they do. And I don't know if that was the case 2,000 years ago with fig trees, but it is the case now. So we'll assume that maybe it wasn't the case then with fig trees. Of course, horticulture, botany, all these things have changed over time. But regardless, modern fig trees, ones that are at least three, four, five years old, you know, beyond their very earliest stages as a sapling, they've grown just a little bit, gotten a little thicker in the trunk, if they are leafing, then they are fruiting. And if there's a tree that's three, four, five years old or older, that's a fig tree, and it has leaves on it, but it has no figs, there's something wrong. There's something wrong with it. Now, Mark makes it very clear that Jesus saw this tree and he was a little ways off and he wanted a fig and he expected a fig to be there. And of course, that makes sense. Jesus could tell by the size of the tree that it was probably big enough to be mature enough to be growing fruit. But he would also know that the leaves would have cloaked most of the fruit and the, the fruit's a little closer in. The little video we should have at the beginning is the actual fig that somebody's picking off an actual fig tree. And so Jesus begins to make his way toward the fig tree. And when he does, he has an expectation. Now, I think what Mark is saying when he says, but there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit, is that probably most of the fig trees in that day and time, they would have fruited later in the season. That makes sense. It wasn't time to take your basket out and to your orchard or to your three or four fig trees. A fig tree in a given growing season, it'll make 100, 200, 300 fruit, depending on whether that tree is healthy and 
fruits twice or not? And so Mark is saying it wasn't the normal season for figs. But his statement, of course, makes it very confusing to us. Matthew didn't include anything like that in his story, anything about expectations. But I think it's pretty clear in the context of the story and what Jesus does to this fig tree, whether it was out of anger or just a normal expectation for a fig tree in leaf, his cursing it, it withering and dying, that when Jesus saw the leaves... His expectation was that there would be fruit. Now, here's what happens in the Gospel of Mark. The next morning as they're leaving, he's hungry, he sees it, and he wants some fruit. Two things are going on here, I think, in this entire story. And the first is this. It's the last week of Jesus' life, and when you read in all four Gospels, as Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross, his language is increasingly apocalyptic. He increasingly talks about all of the things that are going to happen. He, he's describing incredible destruction. He's, in, he's describing all kinds of awful things that are going to occur not too long after he dies and is even raised from the dead. He describes the temple being destroyed and the, the sacking of Jerusalem in AD 70. He describes all sorts of things. And this apocalyptic language that he uses is centered and focused around the people of Israel. Now, Jesus is about to go into the temple, and he's about to clear the temple and call the Jews and the temple this place where, well, he describes it as a den of robbers. That's what he says. And we normally think that that means that there's financial injustice, and Jesus is upset about the money changers and their exchange rates, and how they put a penalty upon those who are immigrants and foreigners and make it unreasonable for them to find their way into worship, and all of that is true. But what he also means by that, when he calls the temple a den of robbers, he's describing the church as a place where people who claim to be religious go and find safety with each other. And they find safety with each other because they can treat outsiders and even some insiders the way they want without any repercussions or any expectations of any changes at all. So it's a den of robbers. And so this is the Israel meaning of what's happening in this passage. I think Jesus walks up to this tree and he says, you know what, this just reminds me so much of Israel. It's got leaves. It's, it's physically or esoterically, it, by appearances, it looks like it should have fruit. But when you get up close and you take a look, there's no fruit. There's nothing good on this tree. I'm hungry. And I walk up to this tree expecting to be satisfied and filled. And it leaves me empty. And maybe a little hangry. And so he's going to curse it. And he does. And it never bears fruit again. Almost all theologians and People who've studied this passage for years find it very confusing, but the, most of them agree on one thing, that it is an indictment on the nation of Israel, that they had every opportunity to welcome the Messiah, and they didn't. Now, this, of course, apocalyptic deal happens the last week of Jesus' life, and he's right, this, this collusion between the Jewish leaders and the Roman government, well, that's essentially how Jesus found himself dying on the cross, but we understand the plan to be much broader and bigger than that, 
and in it we find redemption. And so the meaning behind this for you and me today is, of course, may we not be like Israel. May we not be a den of robbers or a place where religious people can find rest or a haven and they can treat others or outsiders in a way that does not represent the love of God. May that never be true of us. May we be aware of it and in tune with all of these things. But there is a deeper meaning as well just for us today outside of the implications around the nation of Israel. And it's this. Some of us grew up in settings or homes or, or maybe even churches where appearances were valued over the heart. It, it mattered more what you looked like you were doing than what you were actually doing. It mattered more that you had a good reputation above all, but you could live very far from God in your heart. And if that's the case, this example of what's happening in this moment with this fig tree, that's for us. Where outward appearances are valued and judged to be more important than what's occurring in the heart change that happens. Jesus talks about this over and over and over again. He calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, cleaned up on the outside but dirty and rotten on the inside. You're familiar? Jesus talks about the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament. And he says that it is not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, but it's what comes out of their mouth. In other words, it's the inside that makes somebody unclean. Jesus is forever trying to undo the hypocrisy of the Old Testament law that was perverted by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And as he does so, he is pointing to the importance of fruit, how critical it is and what it means for the people around us. I remember when I found this passage when I was growing up. It says, it's not in the scriptures, it's, it's in the NIV, and it uh, is the little heading. I don't know if you know this, we made up the headings. We put that in there, you know. So that ought to scare you a little that we're writing in a typeface in our own Bibles things that, you know, God didn't say. It's a little, little concerning. But it says, it says right, right in this area of the... Uh, the little title there in Mark, it says, Jesus curses a fig tree. I don't know, I was 10 or 11 years old, and I read that, and I saw the title, and I thought, Jesus cursed? <laughs> That's what I thought. I mean, I, I had just learned a few words <laughs> that I was not supposed to say. And for whatever reason, these words got big reactions from whoever I said them in front of. And this meant good things to me. I love to tell funny things. I'd, I'd carry a joke book to the dinner table as a little kid, okay, and read the jokes to mom and dad. My brothers would just roll their eyes and leave the table. But mom and dad, they, they humored me, and they sat and listened to them and laughed as if they heard them for the very first time. And so I got a reaction, positive or negative, from people when I would say any of these words and quickly learned that there's a very short list of words that I am not to say ever in front of anybody unless no adults are around is the, my little parent, parenthetical statement. And so I, I knew that these are words I can't say. And then I saw in the Bible that Jesus curses a fig tree. So I poured over this passage of scripture looking for the curse word <laughs> and did not, did not find it. And I thought, well, I must not be understanding which one of these words belongs on that list. 
of words. I was told in youth group to memorize Ephesians 4.29. Anybody know what it says? Let no unwholesome word come from your mouth. Very good, Hilly. Give Hilly a hand for knowing her scripture. And so this, this was taught to me, but it was taught along these words. It was used as a scripture to proof text to me that these are words that should not be said by anybody who loves Jesus at all. And apparently in my church fellowship, unwholesome talk referred to these words and these words alone. It didn't refer to gossip that could rip a family apart. It didn't refer to rumors that could destroy somebody's reputation. In other words, I don't know about you, but in many experiences, I found that many people are more concerned about the leaves than the fruit. That if the leaves look good, the fruit doesn't matter. And Jesus comes along to say, that's not the case at all. In fact, because I see leaves, I expect fruit. You know what leaves are for, right? Leaves are for receiving nutrients. Leaves are for accepting into the life of this tree nourishment. It's not the only thing. that The roots do that as well. And the roots can't even be seen, but you're assuming that if the tree is healthy, that the roots are down deep into the soil. And if this is true, and a tree is in full leaf, and it has some maturity, and the trunk is thick, and there's assumption that if it's still standing near the hills of Bethany and windy Jerusalem, that it has some deeper roots that Jesus has the right to expect when he approaches that tree that it would have some fruit, but it doesn't. It doesn't have fruit. And when he sees this, his knee goes unmet and he pronounces a judgment. This, this judgment that he pronounces when he says it is critical for us to understand when he says, may you never bear fruit again. Look, from an agricultural viewpoint, the tree was a taker. It was a consumer. It received nourishment, rain, all kinds of benefits of being a tree, but it did not produce. It didn't do the thing it was supposed to do. Healthy growth means that fruit naturally results. If your roots are in and your leaves are out, and I mean, lots of things that can cause a tree to not fruit, but a healthy tree produces fruit. So here's the question for you this week. Sometime this week, somebody's going to approach you and they're going to be hungry. They're going to have a need, and that need is going to be what well, could be anything, right? They could need an ear. Uh, they could need a bit of advice. They could need some compassion, some grace, some forgiveness, maybe some mercy. You're going to be approached by somebody this week, somebody that is uh, waiting your table, somebody that, is a, that lives near you, a neighbor, a friend at work, and they're going to come to you because they see the leaves in a distance. I heard. I heard she goes to church. I heard. I, I know. I know. He, he's a good man. 
I, I know what kind of person he is. I see the leaf. He, she, they're in full leaf. And they're going to come to you hungry. And they're going to move the leaves. They're going to look on the branches. And what they're going to want is a, is a, a ripe fruit. But when Paul describes the fruit that we might bring, he uses these words. It's not an all-inclusive list. There are many other kinds of spiritual fruit that are a result of leaves and roots and growth. But these are the kinds of things that the people who approach you this, might, this week might need. They might need a little love. They might need a little kindness. They might need some patience. They might need any one of these things. And the hope the hope is, is that when they do approach you, that you have some, some fruit to offer. There's all kinds of reasons why we might not have fruit to offer. That's next week. But this week is a story of Jesus approaching a tree with a need, and he finds himself walking away still hungry. Our hope and our prayer is that as our roots go down in Christ and our leaves are receiving the nourishment that God gives us, that we would not find ourselves like that fig tree on the hill, that we would be able to, when they move the leaves out of the way and get a little closer to us, there would be some fruit there to give. Now, let me be clear. You may not have any fruit right now. That's not an indictment. And Jesus will tell another story that is for those of us in the moment that don't feel like we have any fruit to give, again, next week. But this week, may we have this fruit to give. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right now recognizing that the world we live in is hungry. They are hungry for many things. And we see that hunger displayed in a thousand different ways. And Lord, our hope and our prayer is that this week, as those who approach us, that we would keep in mind the lesson of this tree So Lord, we recognize that when Jesus gives this indictment to the nation of Israel, that he gives it to us as a church today, the big C church existing in all the places on this planet. Lord, we pray that we would be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. We pray that we would never allow people who propagate injustice and unfairness to find a haven here, that we would be honest with one another, that we would, iron sharpening iron, be salt and light in a world that desperately needs it. So we pray that we would be that way as a church. But Lord, personally, we ask that you would allow our roots to grow deep into you. That the interactions that we have this week and weeks to come, that we would have fruit to offer. that if we choose to wear the name Christian, follower of your son Jesus, that we would recognize that that comes with a responsibility to be bearing some fruit. As we bear that fruit, we want it to be healthy fruit, tasty, delicious. We want it to be nourishing to the people around us. Lord, as I see the list of fruit that Paul gives us in Galatians. I'm reminded that it is much more about who I am than what I do. It's much more about receiving your love and it deeply 
deeply transforming my nature than it is about being busy about things. And so, Lord, may I be patient this week. Lord, may you fill me with peace this week so that when one of my friends is anxious and distraught about the state of the world and headlines they read and conversations they have, that I can offer this this fruit of peace to them. Lord, may you fill my life with this fruit of love, this agape love, where I want desperately to do for others, for some of them what they can't do for themselves, and for some just out of mercy and graciousness and goodness, offer them a very practical demonstration of what your love looks like. It might be through a gift or a word. It might be through a pat on the back. It might be through just remembering a name or acknowledging what they've done. But Lord, give me the courage to love like that this week. And so Lord, we believe that if we're planted in you, that our roots are deep and they are in good soil. We believe that Jesus is enough to fill us of all that we need, to give us the nourishment and the sunlight and the nutrients that we need so that this fruit can grow. And so, Lord, as we leave this place, we make this declaration together that your son is enough. May we walk in his presence this week. May we offer good fruit to the world around us.